Well, this summer, we are in a sermon series we call Backstory, and uh, we are looking at particular psalms, or psalm, a psalm or psalms each week, and we want to consider the story uh, behind the psalm, behind the poem. The psalms are Hebrew poetry. Um, they're made up of laments and praises. Um, laments, our friends at the Bible Project describe as prayers of pain confusion, anger. Laments draw our attention to what's wrong in the world and ask God to do something about it. And then praises. Again, our friends at the Bible Project say that praises are simply prayers of joy and celebration. They draw attention to what's good in the world. They retell the story, those stories, and thank God for them. So the the Psalms are Hebrew poetry filled with laments and praises. Over half of the Psalms are written by David, and then various other authors have written the rest of them. Some of the Psalms have very direct connections to things we know happened in David's life or elsewhere, if it's not a Davidic Psalm, from stories recorded in other places in the Old Testament. And so as we spend time in different Psalms this summer, we want to see what inspired the author to write the Psalm in the first place to give us a deeper understanding and appreciation for the psalm and its impact and application for us today. So, we're in Psalm 42 and 43. If you have Bibles, you want to turn there. There's some at the end of your rows. If you don't have one with you, uh, I'd love for you to turn there. We'll have it on the screen. I actually don't have this first part on the screen, actually. So, uh, if you turn to your Bibles and you open up to Psalm 42, Psalms are in the middle of the Bible, if you don't know. Basically, right in the middle. Chapter 42. There's a heading before the first verse. And the heading says, To the choir master, a masculine of the, son, of the sons of Korah. So this is actually the first psalm uh, in the psalms so far, the first 41 psalms, um, that has not been attributed to someone other than David. So David, uh, other than four psalms in the first 41, are attributed to David writing them. So this is the first one. Uh, where it's not David. And the sons of Korah, it's good for you to know a little bit about them. Korah, the sons of Korah, Korah was a priest from the tribe of Levi, and he rebelled against Moses and Aaron, and uh, a lot of his family, Korah's family, was killed because of it. However, some descendants remained uh, and stayed part of the priestly tribe of Levi, um, and they had musical responsibilities at the tabernacle or in the temple. And at the time of David and Solomon, they were musicians or, or gatekeepers. So most scholars put these two psalms together, 42 and 43, because there's no new heading on 43. If you look at 43, there's not another he- heading there. It just kind of continues. And as, as you noticed, even when we read it, uh, there are a lot of similarities and parallels and actual exact verses from 43 that are, are in also in 42. They're clearly linked. Some do think the writing in these chapters feels and sounds more like David, even though it's not attributed to David. Sons of Korah were the choir leaders, right? So maybe potentially David wrote it and they uh, sang it and presented it. Um, Regardless of the author, these two psalms are often linked to the time David was exiled from his kingdom because of his son Absalom, who uh, had attempted to take the throne away from David. And so you, we find that story, the backstory for this psalm today, and for our Psalm uh, 63, which we're going to cover um, in a couple of weeks, in a few weeks, uh, is from 2 Samuel 14 to 19. And that's where, where you find the story of Absalom 
and his uh, um, relationship with David. Uh, so Absalom has a sister, Tamar, who is raped by another son of David's, Amnon. Absalom kills Amnon. Absalom then is exiled and is gone for a couple of years and then comes back and is around for a couple of years. And then he starts hanging out at the gate of, in Jerusalem. And he offers his services to uh, the people that come in the gate to be their judge. And he gains favor with people. He does that for four years. And eventually he pronounces himself king. And uh, 2 Samuel says the hearts of the, of the men of Israel went after Absalom. And so word of that gets to David, and David flees. Uh, now, if you know much about David, uh, he spent a lot of his life running <laughs> Uh, from Saul before he became king. Saul chased him around, uh, and he was uh, fled from him and for his own life a lot, uh, for many years before he became king. Here, David does not put up a fight. He doesn't mount up his army. He humbly uh, leaves. <laughs> it says the hearts, are, the hearts were turned toward Absalom. And so uh, it says also, David says something um, in, in that when he's talking to his, his people and that he's going to leave, that he doesn't want Absalom to come in and kill all of his people. Uh, so he thinks by leaving, he can save uh, a lot of death coming to his people and to the city. And so he leaves. Um, and as they're leaving, his people are bringing the Ark of the Covenant, which uh, symbolized uh, God's presence, was God's presence. Uh, and David tells them to leave it, to leave it in the city. As they're leaving. In 2 Samuel 15, the king said to Zadok, Take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. So they're going to bring God's presence with them, and David says, No, leave it here in the city. Um, so they, they go on their way, and David uh, interacts with. Um, Shimei, who is a descendant of Saul, and he comes out, and he's cursing David, and he's throwing rocks and stones at him, and David's uh, servants want to kill him, and David says, no, don't kill him. Uh, maybe he's cursing me on behalf of the Lord. Uh, so this guy walks along with them for a while, throwing dirt and rocks at them uh, as, they, as they flee. I think what's clear to me that through his years of walking with God, David has truly learned to trust the Lord. Because he, his kingdom is being overthrown, it's been taken from him by his son, and he humbly leaves. He doesn't take the Ark of the Covenant with him, and he lets this person just throw rocks at him and curse him. Um, he has found a trust in the Lord uh, that he, uh, over the many years of his life walking with God, uh, has just grown and grown. And so we're, we're actually going to talk about that a little bit today. So that's the backstory of Psalm 42 and 43. David is in exile. He's running from his backstabbing son who has tried to make himself king. So I want to look at the passage in, in three sections today. Um, each one of the sections ends with the same refrain. If you don't know what a refrain is, uh, it's just musical poetic term for a re repeat, basically. Uh, and so uh, verse, 40, verse 5, verse 11 of chapter 42, and verse 5 of ch chapter 43 is the exact same verse. And it says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So I'm going to look at three... We're going to look at the passage in three sections, each one ending with this verse. I want to look at this verse, these, this verse in particular first. 
The author really is talking to himself here. Why, my soul, are you so sad? As if to ask, do you have good reason to be sad and upset? Why so disturbed within me? Some translations say uh, disquieted. And that's not just uneasiness. That is a violent agitation. It's a word that they used when they talked about like a storm at sea. And it says, why so disturbed within me? And within me literally means uh, upon me. It's weighing him down. The author is down. He's sad. He's agitated. He's feeling the weight of his situation. But he tells himself to put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. Other translations say, wait for God. The author is longing for hope. Then he says, I will yet praise him. Other translations use again, for I shall again praise him, the ESV says. There's just a continuance there. I will yet praise him. Despite all the things going on around me, I will still praise him. Even in the midst of difficult, heavy things, we can still praise God. It's not empty praise. Acknowledgement that things are bad, but choosing to praise him despite circumstances or how you feel in any given moment is not uh, empty Sometimes it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy, but it's not empty. The author is really talking his heart out of depression and despair of his situation. He's reminding himself of the reasons for faith and hope. There's someone bigger to hope in, to wait on and trust in, his, his Savior and his God situation doesn't necessarily change for him, but turning his heart toward God changes his perspective on the situation. Faith in God's faithfulness, even when all things point to the contrary, is what we see in this verse, and it is the refrain of these, uh, this, these two chapters of the Psalms. So let's look at the first section, uh, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one, with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. The soul is, a, is the whole person, the, to all of who you are. So everything is longing for God, his God. It says, uh, verse 2 says, my soul thirsts for God, the living God. The living God, the source of life. In verse 8, uh, he says, the God of my life. He's not just utterly dependent on God for life, but finds joy and pleasure of simply being in God's presence, which we'll see in chapter 43. So he's longing for God. He is desperate for God. He says, when can I go and meet with God? Before Jesus, people could meet and worship God in the temple, the place where you met, the place where you could meet God was there in the temple. And he wants to know when he can go and meet with God again because something is preventing him from going to that place. Again, if this is uh, David or if it's referring to his time in exile, uh, he's left the ark behind. 
He's distant, he's separated from the presence of God, and he's hoping he still has God's favor. And he desperately wants to be back where he can be with God and worship God. John 4, uh, Jesus meets a woman at the well, and he talks to her about living water. And he says that he has water that quenches our, our actual thirst, a, a real deep thirst indefinitely. You can drink water and you'll get thirsty again, he says, but I have living water that will, will allow you to never thirst again. And that's what the psalmist is writing and wanting is God's presence. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Things are pretty rough for the author, right? It says Tear, his tears are his food day and night. Uh, that's a very sad, very sad sentence. This feels like a country music song a little bit. Um, he's eating his tears for, fo- for food day and night. People are, are taunting him, saying, where's your God? Even in uh, that, he says, I remember as I pour out my soul. So he remembers, even though he's feeling distant, he praises God. He remembers a time where he can praise God together with his people in festival. He remembers, remembering is important. He's really kind of forcing himself to remember, especially in a moment where he is not feeling close to the Lord. He's determined to remember. So he's calling up these memories of festivals. Within Jewish tradition, the festivals were these huge times where they all came together to celebrate God for different thing, in different things and the way God has been faithful to them in different ways. And it was rich, a rich time of worship for God's people. And he's thinking about that. He's remembering those times. And then he tells himself, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him my Savior, and my God. He's telling himself to stick with it. There are grounds for faith and hope and praise. Then uh, verses 6 through 11 says this, My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you. From the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So the author's trials and tribulations drive the psalmist toward God, not away from God. My soul is downcast, he says. Therefore, because I am sad, because my soul is downcast, I will remember you. How often is our temptation Uh, Is it our temptation to move away from God in the midst of hardship, painful circumstances, confusion, doubt? We forget him and the work he's done in our life. But the author of the Psalms, this Psalm, is willing to kind of force himself to remember. And what is important to me, I think, in in that verse is, "Therefore, therefore I will remember you. He's not remembering all the good things that God has done for him, but he's simply remembering God. 
not just the joyful events of worship. He t- in, the, in the previous verses, he talks about remembering the festivals and being together and celebrating with God's people. But here, he, he remembers God, the object of his worship, the object, uh, the source of his life and hope. So it says that, uh, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon from Mount Mazar. So most likely the author here is near Mount Hermon. Uh, this is a, like a mountain range, actually far north Israel, out, really out on the outskirts of Israel. Very far away from Jerusalem where he, uh, the author, wants to be. And where the Jordan, actually right around where the Jordan River begins, uh, near the Hermon Mountains, and it rushes over boulders and falls. And so he talks about... Uh, this imagery, then in verse 7, the roar of your waterfalls, all the waves and breakers have swept over me. So he opens the psalm with needing water and using an analogy of, with water, and now he's overwhelmed by the crushing waves. Wave after wave is rushing over him, never stopping. But his faith keeps asserting himself. Verse 8. Verse 8 is exactly in the middle of this passage, 42 and 43. It says, by day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. This is the only place that confidence in the Lord is expressed throughout the whole two, these two psalms that we're reading today. The only place that there's actual confidence. It's also the only place in the two chapters where the personal name for God, Yahweh, is used. In the previous 41 verses, most often when God is referred uh, to, uh, it uses the word Yahweh, um, Jehovah, Lord. It's the covenantal name that, uh, of God. It reminds the Israelites that he is their God. Uh, and so there's a, just in the Psalms, there's five books. The Psalms are divided into five books, and this is the start of book two. Uh, and this book, uh, in particular, very rarely uses the word Yahweh to, to, um, for God. It uses another Elohim, another word for God. Um, and so there, there's intimacy with this word, Yahweh. It is, it is the name that uh, God tells Moses to tell the Israelites that, who he is. Uh, in Exodus 3, um, Moses meets with God at the burning bush, and tells, God tells Moses to go and uh, save his people from slavery. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation, Yahweh, their God, their personal God. There were lots of gods back then, and it was, this was distinguishing, uh, this was to distinguish their God, the Israelites' God, from all of the other gods. It says, by day the Lord directs his love, at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life, God of my life, the God to whom my life belongs, upon whom it depends, and who is, who it, who is bound to protect it, who is by creation the author and by covenant, the preserver of my life. That was one commentator's description of what it means, but God of my life, the God to whom my life belongs, upon whom it depends, and who is bound to protect it, who is by creation the author, and by covenant, the preserver of my life. 
The writer is so sure of God's presence in verse 8, and it's a stark contrast then when you go to verse 9. There's pain in the absence. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning oppressed by the enemy? God is the rock, this island of safety, but the author still feels forgotten, abandoned. There's no easing of his stress. He's still oppressed by the enemy. His bones suffer mortal agony. It's excruciating pain. He's being taunted. Where is your God? Where is your God? The psalmist is in darkness. He's feeling the weight of his situation and his emotions, but he also testifies to the light, reminding himself of what is true in the midst of the storm. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Our kids woke up in the middle of the night. I don't know if you heard the storm last night. It was pretty loud. Um, We have uh, three kids at home, and our oldest and our youngest were the ones that actually woke up and were scared by it, um, and both of them just terrified, and they're in the midst of it, and they need reminded that it's going to be okay, that we're in a house, and we're dry, and we're safe, but I needed to remind them. They needed to be reminded, and I, I I even said it to Alexis. She said, you're right. You're right. We're safe in the house. We're safe in here. We're safe in the house. That's right. She needed, her, she needed to remind herself uh, in the midst of the storm that she was safe. Verse, uh, chapter 43 says, Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, you are God my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. I don't know if you, can, you notice it or not, but there is a shift in tone and content from chapter 43 to chapter, chapter 42 to 43. He's moving past the memories to actual prayers to God. He's dialoguing directly with God, appealing to him, God, directly. He's moving from lament to imperatives. Vindicate me, my God. Plead my cause. Rescue me. Send me your light. vindicate me, there is just an an innocent sufferer who wants God to act as his advocate against an unfaithful nation in particular. So again, he would be feeling like his his nation has been unfaithful to him by allowing this other king to come in. The tone here is, uh, begins to be more hopeful. It's resilient, more than just, I am dry and I thirst. But there's a hope. He wants to get back to to the presence of God in the temple where God is at the altar. He bursts with joy at the thought of returning to worship God again. God is his joy and delight, verse 4 says. He's more confident than defiant that he's going to get back to this closeness with God. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the liar, O God, my God. It's like he can see it. 
He can picture it. He's not just thinking back to when it was, but he's actually looking forward to when he will get to do that again. So the author, whether it's David or or not, is longing to be back in God's presence, to worship God, to be with God. So the author is in some kind of exile. There is some kind of distance between him and God. And there's hope that it's coming. There's hope that God's presence is coming. Uh, And if this is David, it does come. Absalom fails and is killed, and David is reinstalled as king. And God does prove himself to be faithful again to, to David, and he's back to Jerusalem to worship him. I think as we think about the Psalms this summer, I think it's important for us to think about how we read and apply the Psalms in our life. In a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, um, the authors talk about the Bible being God's word, um, and it's, that it's not just words from God to people. It also includes words spoken to God or about God, and that's specifically what we find in the Psalms, is all of these words, most of them are spoken to God or about God. They're, exp- they're addressed to God, and they express truth about God, one or the other. So how do these words spoken to God, function as a word from God to us? And I think that's an important question for us as we look at the Psalms this summer. Uh, And the authors say this, that that the Psalms help us express ourselves to God and to consider God's ways. The Psalms, therefore, are of great benefit to the believer who looks to the Bible for help in expressing joys and sorrows, successes and failures, hopes and regrets, or simply to worship. Sometimes we we don't have words, (laughs) And so we have the word to be, speak a word for us on our behalf. And the Psalms are great for that. And they are just, you can feel the emotion in Psalm 42 and 43. All the range of emotions are covered in the Psalms. There is this, uh, there is a distance between the, the author, the writer of the Psalms, and God. And you can feel it. And I, as I've sat um, in these words to God this week, I've been struck and was moved by the intimacy and the closeness that the author has with God. So I don't if you have your Bible out and want to look at it, there, there's just several, quite a few things that just show to me, at least, I felt like God was highlighting just the intimacy that the author has with him. He says uh, several times, my God. He talks about the living God, the God of my life. When can I go and meet with him again? He's longing to to be with him. He's like, he wants to be close again with God. He calls him my Savior three times, my God three times. His song is with me. He's the God of my life, God, my rock, my God, God, my stronghold. He longs to be back with God on his holy mountain. Calls God his joy my joy and my delight, my God, again. There's this intimacy, there's this personal relationship there that is, I think, really palpable. At the time of writing this, he is, it does not have that closeness. He is feeling this distance, whether it's physically, he's far away from God, emotionally, spiritually, he's distant. But he chooses to remember how it was when he was close with God, and to turn to the author of life, even in the midst of pain and struggle, confusion, despair. 
there is this huge importance for us to remember. Uh, all throughout Scripture, it talks about the importance of remembering. One of the, uh, one of the commentators I was reading uh, talked about uh, the importance of memory and how it helps us uh, very practically. So he had kidney stones. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had kidney stones. I have not, thankfully, uh, but I hear they are not comfortable. Uh, and so he had kidney stones, and he didn't, at first, when he first had them, he didn't know what they were, and so he's freaking out, this crazy intense pain, uh, and goes to the hospital, and they take care of it, and the stone passes, and everything's fine. But then he's getting another stone, but he remembers what it was like the first time. So one, he can uh, address or identify, oh, this is that, this is that same pain. I, I know what to do with this now. And so he can go to the hospital quicker. It's still painful. It doesn't decrease the amount of pain, but his perspective on the pain is changed, and it's different because he remembers what it was like, and it helps him face the situ- situation again. David, for years, has walked through difficult and painful situations. And here, toward the end of his life, his son betrays him. I mean, that's got to be a terrible thing. Has to feel terrible and be uh, extremely emotional for him. And it is emotional. You see David wrestle with it, even what to do with his son who kills his other son and how to love him. There's this, like, struggle. But you can see the intimacy that David has with God, as I mentioned earlier in in what we read in the Psalms or in, the, in 2 Samuel, from the story of 2 Samuel. He trusts God. He doesn't put up a fight. And he, he goes. He leaves. And several times uh, in this passage, it talks about remembering. I remember, I remember. Uh, and uh, there's something especially important about our corporate memory. And it's important for us to remind ourselves of... Um, who God is and what he's done in our life. Last week, we talked about tasting and seeing, and the Thursday, we, we reflected and prayed for each other and praised God for the ways that we've tasted and seen that God has been good in our life. So we have to remind ourselves of that, though, in the midst of difficult situations. And we don't have to be alone in that. Several times uh, in this, these psalms, the psalmist writes about doing that corporately with other people. And it's very important for us to remind each other. That's why we gather on Sundays every week. <laughs> because we need to remember we're not good. We forget. <laughs> we need to be reminded. We need to remind, especially when it's hard for us to remember on our own. We need to be reminded. So I'm read this paragraph from... One of the commentaries talks about uh, the importance of memory. He says, Worship together is a place of memory. Together we call to mind what it is so easy to forget alone, that God is good and that his steadfast love endures forever for those who trust in him. Corporate worship counters our society's message of forgetfulness and sends a message both outwardly and inwardly that we are not alone. Worship is a place for testimony and celebration. It is a time for confession and forgiveness it is a place where we remember the past, receive power to face the present, and conceive hope for tomorrow. 
Remembering is important. That psalm, you see the psalmist, you see him, he is discouraged, he is down, but he's trying to remind himself. He says over and over again, right? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. A quick caveat, just thanking God for his goodness in the midst of difficult and uh, complicated circumstances implies there's a confidence and a hope that it will happen, that God will meet us and will uh, be with us and will come through for us. But you can't necessarily talk yourself out of depression, or you can't necessarily talk yourself out of uh, uh, anxiety. So that's not what the psalmist is saying. I want to make sure I'm going to be clear about that. I was singing about that this morning. But we have to remind ourselves, and when we, we can remind ourselves, and other people can remind us, and we can go to counseling, and they can remind us, and we can get the help that we need. But some of us really do struggle with depression or anxiety or other problems that are chronic. And that's not to minimize those things this morning for you. Those are real problems. But there's an intimacy with Jesus that he is inviting us into. And he has, uh, he has come close and has invited us to come close to him. The intimacy that we see uh, the psalmist have, we can have also with the Lord. Because, uh, Jesus, because of Jesus. Jesus came, Jesus was God, is God, and came to earth to show us God's love for us and to draw us back into a relationship with him that was not possible in the time of David, at least the kind of relationship that we can have with him now. Jesus came and he lived his life on this earth. He showed us what it means to love God, to, fo- to love others. He called us to follow him. And he died on a cross and um, didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the dead so that we could have life eternal with him. And we can have intimacy with God again. We can have a relationship with God again because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And every Sunday, we remember. We come together and we remember. It's important for us to remember. We remind ourselves. We sing these songs and we remember because life is hard. And we can wrestle with God in these things. Ralph and I were talking this week. He's reading a book for his class in seminary that he's taking. Um, and talking about faith, and that's psychological certainty. Um, I think we believe that psychological certainty is equal to the, the more certain we are psychologically, the stronger our faith. And if you read throughout the Psalms, that is absolutely not the case. There, is, there are questions. There are doubts. There is longing. There's... He's, the psalmist is not even, he's, he's longing to hope. He's not even hoping. He can't even hope. He's longing. He's hoping to hope. We can take those things with God. We can wrestle with God. He invites us to wrestle with him with those things. We can trust him, that we can take those things to him, our confusions, our pushbacks, and God can handle them, and that God will still be faithful to us. 
despite our questions, despite our doubts, despite our struggles. So, just want to remind you this morning of that truth that we see in the Psalms. We want to remember, as we do every week, uh, what Jesus did for us on the cross but through communion. So, we're going to take communion this morning. Um, the bread and the cup remind us of what Jesus did on the cross, that he died. He gave his body, which is represented by the bread. He gave his blood, which is represented by the cup, so that we could have intimacy with him again. And some of us um, maybe are feeling distant from God this morning or in the midst of a situation that is frustrating or confusing or you find yourself doubting his presence, his work. Remember that he is faithful. Remember, we, can re- we remember this morning that he came to earth. He showed us how much he loved us. He came to earth. He died and rose again so that we could have life and intimacy with him. I'm going to pray, and they're going to bring the bread and the cup, and you can take it when you're ready. Uh, if you're a believer, we invite you to do so. Uh, if you have yet to make a decision to follow Jesus, then just ask you to let it pass you by. Um, and Just consider Jesus' work on the cross and that he is calling you toward to you, to himself, and intimacy with him.